Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, and this week we are going to talk once again about global order. In fact, we're going to dive very deeply into some of the different ways of thinking about order in the future, and in particular, to examine the idea of a global concert of powers to promote stability in a multipolar world and uh, see whether that is a better way or a worse way of thinking about the future of order than the international liberal order, which we have come to support and enjoy uh, after the last few centuries of, of the Western domination of the world. I'm happy to welcome an all-star cast to make sense of these big topics. First up, we have Charles Cupchin, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University. Also has been senior official in the Obama administration and before that in the Clinton administration working on uh, on Europe as well as other issues. Second, uh, down the line from New York, we have Leslie Vinjamuri, who is the director of the United States and America's program and the dean of the Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership in International Affairs at Chatham House. And the third speaker is Niku Popescu, senior policy fellow at ECFR, director of our Wider Europe program. All three have just written about these topics for foreign affairs. Charlie and Richard Haas have written a piece on the idea of the the global concert of powers. Leslie has co-written a piece uh, looking at the future of the liberal international order. And uh, Niku has written a a response to to Charlie and Richard's piece. So why don't we start with this idea of the the global concert of powers? We've talked a lot on this podcast about great power competition between China and the US in particular, the blockage and weaponization of the multilateral system, as well as the crisis of democracy. And the the challenge now is to, to think about how we can start bringing some order to the disorder, which is threatening not just peace and security in different parts of the world, but our response to, to big crises like the corona pandemic and, and climate change. Charlie, you've written a really interesting essay together with Richard Haas in which you promote the idea of a new concert of powers. Can you talk about what that means, what sort of order as a concert would look like in the 21st century, who would be involved, where the idea comes from? Sure, uh, Mark. It's a, it's a pleasure to be to be with you and to have a conversation with you and Niku and, and, and Leslie. Let me begin by saying that the, the proposal that Richard Haas and I make is admittedly a little bit out there. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it is what you might call a Hail Mary in the sense that we're really looking for ways to address the shortfall in global governance, the supply of public goods. Uh, and we're looking back to history, the concept of Europe in the 19th century, to try to generate some fresh ideas about what we need today. And, and we, we begin with several observations. One is that the current architecture is manifestly inadequate whether it is great power competition situation in Ukraine, Taiwan, the pandemic, cybersecurity, the increasing shortfall of food in the developing world, you name it, there are global crises that are occurring that are not being adequately addressed. 
And our the second starting point is that we think this problem is going to get worse, not better. And that's because we we still are clinging to an architecture based on the liberal international order, as well as the U.N., that uh, will over time become increasingly out of date and ill suited to the current landscape, ill suited because uh, it it reflects the post 1945 era, not 2021 and, and where we are today ill-suited because it doesn't really provide a forum for working across ideological dividing lines. The international order, the, the, the view of the Biden administration that we need an alliance of democracies to marshal like-minded stakes against autocracy, that strikes me as the wrong way to go at this moment. We need to find a forum where democracies and non-democracies can come together to address the big questions of our time. Uh, And so very briefly, we point to a concert for two reasons. One, it's inclusive. It it puts at the table the powers that need to be there, regardless of regime type. And two, it's informal. No vetoes, no rules, no grandstanding, no communiques. It's a private, quiet venue for major players to come together on a daily basis to try to address the globe's problems. And so we would put at the table the United States, the European Union, China, Russia, India, and Japan. We would also locate at the headquarters of the concert, and we believe there should be a standing headquarters, the uh, representatives of ASEAN, the Arab League, the African Union, and the Organization of American States to make sure all parts of the world are are represented. And this body would sit atop the current international architecture. It would be consultative, not decisional. It would tee up decisions through ongoing consultation and then pass decisions to the UN or other bodies for formal decision-making and implementation. I'll stop there, Mark and look forward to incoming fire from all of you. So just before we invite some of this incoming fire, um, can you just explain one more thing? Why is this necessary on top of the UN and the G20 and all these other bodies that that already include most of the countries that you mentioned? Well, you know, the UN is in some ways the best institution out there to deal with global governance because it includes everybody and there's a UN Security Council. The problem is the Security Council is outmoded. It doesn't reflect the current distribution of power. And perhaps even more critically, it has a veto. And as a consequence, it is paralyzed at the very moment at which it needs to take action. There's a lot of grandstanding, a lot of hot air, but not a lot of action coming out of the UN Security Council. The G20 also provides a forum where countries from different parts of the world are at the table and and includes uh, the the various players that we see as needed to be included. But it, it meets sporadically. It generally takes decisions that lead to nothing more than communiques. And, and so it's not rising to the occasion. And as a consequence, we think it needs to be necked down from 20 to six plus these other regional organizations to give it 
the efficacy, the efficiency, the small n, if you will, that can lead to a meeting of the minds on not just crises, but longer term issues like climate change, cybersecurity, dealing with digital governance. These issues are falling through the cracks because there's no place where they are being dealt with on a daily basis. Okay. So uh, thanks a lot, Charlie. That's very clear. Um, Leslie, I'm going to come to you soon to, to talk about why you think the liberal order can be rebuilt. But before we do that, Niku, you've just written a, a response to Charlie and Richard's piece. Why don't you like the the idea of a global concert? Well, for several reasons. Of course, I'm like most international relations observers. I'm not necessarily a big fan of what is happening now. Uh, but I think that we're, in a sense, looking at the wrong place by looking at the concert of Europe for several reasons. I think one big problem is that the concert of Europe and 19th century European diplomacy is very often depicted as this wonderful golden era when smart diplomats and statesmen were gathering together in Vienna and where they were going to balls and the opera, and they were basing state interaction on you know, mutual respect and mutual respect for power balances and sensitivities. And that's all of it is true, but it's only the tip of the iceberg because I think fundamentally what the concert of Europe was, uh, it was also a commitment by the great powers of the day to go to war with each other if that balance of power was not working. And that peaceful phase of the Concert of Europe lasted only between 1815, the Vienna Congress, and the Crimean War in 1853. And that's only 38 years. And after these 38 years, France and the, and the United Kingdom went to war in support of the Ottoman Empire against Russia. So to me, the Concert of Europe is not a way to prevent war. The main point of the concert of Europe and the main reason why diplomacy worked is because the great powers were ready to go to war with each other. Uh, and that was a fundamental, the fundamental basis on which diplomats had, had an incentive to agree. Uh, and to me, partly because of that, the concert of Europe is not something which helps us solve the dilemmas of today's world, partly because many of these powers are nuclear, so you cannot really go to war with them if they uh, imbalance power. Uh, and there's, there's many other reasons, but that is a fundamental reason. And of course, the other point is we'll, if we look at the length of peace in Europe at the time, I mentioned this 38 years of war. But actually, the Yalta system lasted longer than that, and it also managed to prevent great power wars. And even now, we're in 32nd year after the end of the Cold War. So by historical standards, the current international system has almost been as good at avoiding great power war uh, as the concert of Europe was at that time. But of course, if you allow me another minute, the, the biggest problem with, the, with this peaceful phase of the concert of Europe is that what followed was a hundred years of European wars, which started with the war in Crimea and ended with World War II. And the Concert of Europe was completely unable to, to manage the rise of Prussia, you know, the two world wars that started in Europe and all of that. It's funny, Nico. I was expecting you to, to argue against it because you thought that, that one of the 
big principles of the 21st century was about the sovereignty of, of powers that are not great, like Moldova, which you come from, um, which often end up finding their sovereignty compromised with Yalta-type arrangements. So that, that isn't your kind of central critique. Well, in a sense, I try to adopt, if you want, the the, the concept and kind of critique it based on, based on its own assumptions. And of course, the kind of small state factor is there, and it was much more easy to manage the small states in the 19th century for plenty of reasons, not least because there were so few of them in Europe at the time. Uh, and of course, that, that remains part of it. But even if you're a great power player and you believe the great powers have this stamina and the readiness to deal with each other and solve problems peacefully. Even if you have this great power outlook and interest, I still think the Concert of Europe uh, was not something which would be useful in stabilizing today's world. Okay. So, Leslie, in your piece, you talk about how to rebuild the liberal order at home. And I want to talk about that as a, as a sort of separate theme. But before we come to that, maybe we can stick for, for a few more minutes on this idea of the, the global concert. I want to go back to Charlie and see what he thinks about Niku's critique. But it would also be interesting to, to hear what your take is on it. Charlie and Richard highlight in their piece that the concert would largely separate ideological differences over domestic governance from matters of international cooperation. Do you think that's that's possible when we're dealing with issues like data and digital governance and, and climate change? Or is it increasingly difficult uh, in a globalized, interdependent world to separate those things from, from one another? Thank you, Mark. It's uh, it's great to join this conversation. It's an important one. I think the proposal that uh, Charlie and Richard have put on the table is bold. It's important for this reason. It, it, it asks us to rethink the existing arrangement that we have for international order and global governance. And, that, and that's not really something that people are doing in this kind of, quite frankly, radical way. Um, but but I think it in some ways risks putting uh, form um, and function over some deeper, deeper issues. And to your point, I do think that a lot of the issues that really need to be grappled with between the major powers uh, have very deep um, implications for our values, for liberal values, for authoritarian values. And until you've got some deeper consensus behind you in your domestic publics, it's very difficult to bring the unity and the strength of position that you need to have to that stage. Because as, as we all know, it's one thing to agree policy. It's quite another matter to take it back home and to implement it. And that's really what makes all the difference when it comes to moving forward on this broader array of issues that's so critical as we look forward from technology to artificial intelligence to climate, cooperating to prevent the next pandemic. All of these things require not just an agreement between those at the table, but one that's really agreed upon and, and is sustainable, it can be delivered back at home. The other thing that I think is, is you know, sort of a little bit concerning, we, uh, I, you know, I work at Chatham House, I'm, I'm quite close to the UK, I take the UK's leadership potential um, and role very seriously. And, you know, the proposal that Charlie and Richard have put on the table takes the UK right off that that front edge of cooperation and it replaces it with the EU. Now, I mean, we can debate that, but I think uh, who's at the table matters. It matters a lot. 
And um, so I think, you know, there are some there are some concrete questions that come out of that proposal, whether you've got the right people participating at the right moment in time. But I like the fact that it's there. You know, there's another contribution in our volume by Suzanne Nossel, who makes the very important argument. She says, you know, why start over? Right. Why not just take what we have, take the United Nations reinvigorate it, get the U.S. back in the game and and make that work. And and to Charlie's point that, you know, there's a veto and so there's a deadlock. Well, yes and no. I mean, as we know, the Security Council is, you know, the veto is kind of we know where where we're going to land, but it's the conversation. It's the deliberation, much of which is open to the world to watch. That I think is so much of what 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 is important on the Security Council and the General Assembly is very critical. So while if one were starting from a blank slate, if we were starting from scratch, maybe a version of the concert is where we might wish to go. Yeah, we live in a we live in in a world in which resources, time um, are are in very short supply, and where many of these issues are urgent, not least climate. And uh, and I don't I just don't think we have the latitude to start over. Right. So quite a lot of uh, uh, pushback there, Charlie. Um, it didn't work anyway. The original concert, uh, it wouldn't be seen as legitimate by lots of different countries. We have the time to to do it. Why reinvent the wheel when there are institutions which already exist, which can be re-legitimated? Which of those kind of arguments do you think are, are kind of fair and which ones do you think are not so relevant in terms of the uh, viability of your idea? Well, um, thanks to, to Nico and Leslie for, for a great set of comments. You know, my, my first point is to say that, number one, I completely agree with, with Leslie that we need to focus at least as much attention on rebuilding the domestic foundations of democratic engagement in the world as we do uh, across ideological dividing lines. And, you know, I'm someone who, who thinks that one of Biden's key tasks has to be to rebuild the U.S. from the inside out so that it again plays a positive role and an, and an, a multilateral role in the, in the international system. Uh, as far as, as Niku goes, you know, I, I have a, a somewhat different read on the concert. I don't think it was a, a commitment to go to war to preserve the balance of power. It was a commitment to resolve differences through conversation, through dialogue. Uh, The powers actually disagreed on many different issues, including intervention in liberal revolutions in Italy, liberal uh, change in Spain, and uh, they ended up finding ways to prevent those differences from causing a break. So I, I see it as more a, a forum for avoiding conflict than a forum that led to conflict. And the key change that Niku correctly points to that led to the Crimean War were the revolutions of 1848, which led to a profound increase in nationalism, made it much more difficult for uh, the elites in question to conduct statecraft. Uh, given where we are today, perhaps that is a cautionary word. Given we got populism and nationalism in spades, so it does make it more difficult for leaders to conduct statecraft. But my, you know, my bottom line is is really the following: It seems to me to be a serious and 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 very grave inadequacy that as we speak, as the four of us gather on this call, key players are not sitting down and talking to each other about 
the primary issues of the day, right? The United States and Russia. Well, okay, there's going to be maybe a summit because Biden called Putin and the national security advisor in the U.S. called his counterpart in Russia. But we need to be speaking hourly, daily, minutely on on Ukraine, on the big issues of the day. What about Taiwan? What about the pandemic? Let's let's just assume that a concert had existed over the last 10 years. What might have been different? Well, maybe we would have had a response to the pandemic on day one because the Chinese were sitting at the table with other key players. Maybe we would have been able to avoid the war in Syria and the spillover of that war into neighboring countries because the great powers came together and they decided how they were going to try to contain that war. There are a lot of counterfactuals that that I think are important here. And I can't tell you that if there is a concert that all of these problems would be solved. But it seems to me to be self-evident that we have a better chance of containing and maybe avoiding civil wars in Syria or Rwanda or Yugoslavia, in avoiding pandemics, in dealing with digital regulation and cybersecurity, if the key countries with the most influence in the international system are actually dealing with each other on a day-to-day basis in a way that's focused on getting results. Okay, so um, that leads us, I think, to this idea about whether there is an alternative way of thinking about world order, which is about the reinvigoration of the liberal order. Leslie, you've written this piece together with with Robin Niblett, where you argue that we need a new social contract at home in order to, to reboot the liberal order. But you do say in your piece that you also need to have an international environment that's conducive to liberal democracy and that the to quote, the spectre of a world order whose dominant institutions are at best neutral towards individual freedoms and democracy is not compelling. Do you want to explain why you think it's possible to uh, to reboot the world order at a time when uh, there's so many powers uh, out there who don't think of themselves as, as, as liberal democracies that are becoming increasingly important to the management of, of issues from pandemics to climate change to the security of different theatres? Well, you're absolutely right, Mark. We've seen 15 years of global decline in democracy. It's very obvious just when you wake up and read the papers of how much the values question is at stake in so many in so many places that are absolutely critical to getting these kind of global agreements. Um, but I think one of the reasons why we've seen that trend is because, quite frankly, uh, the domestic politics, the divisions, the inequalities, the racism in the United States and and in different ways across much of Europe, um, don't make the model seem tremendously appealing uh, to a lot of people. And And that takes me, I think, to my broader point, which is it's one thing to say that there is a decline in the institutions, in the leadership on questions of liberalism and liberal values. But it's quite another thing to say that people don't still wish to have individual freedoms, as well as economic prosperity. And and I think, you know, the the key thing is if the U.S. can take this trajectory that the Biden administration is really doubling down on, which is to invest at home um, and to try to reduce those inequalities, build those bridges, a very tall order, as we know, 
so that so that the United States uh, can role model the, the strength of democracy, the potential of democracy at a time of what's likely to be over the next year, some good economic growth um, coming out of the pandemic in a very strong way, not least because of science and technology and the, the reinvigoration and the elevation of science back into public policy. We're seeing this in the UK as well with the integrated review. I think rebuilding the liberal order, um, not exactly as it was, either with respect to issues or members or, or rules, but, but making the case by demonstrating the potential at home, I think will go a long way towards shaping what takes, beyond the takes place beyond the transatlantic space. Because I think at the end of the day, a lot of people uh, wish for a lot more than, than perhaps their leaders are willing to give them. So you think that if the US is seen as more successful outside, that that will then lead countries like China and India and Turkey and Russia to embrace liberalism? Well, you know, you've, you've put some very different countries in the basket there. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm not going to be the first nor the last person to suggest that China is going to transition into a liberal democracy. But, I, you know, India is a very different question. Turkey is a very different question. Um, and there are a lot of countries across Southeast Asia, across to Africa. There are some difficult politics in Brazil. There are a lot of countries that, that some people like to talk about as swing states, or where the balance lies, where there are domestic constituencies that have uh, people who have had an experience of, of liberalism, of democracy, um, and who some of whom um, are very much within the orbit of uh, the transatlantic partners or, or have the hope to be. And I, and I think that's where a lot is at stake. China's a very different question. Um, but the, the influence of China, of course, far beyond its, its narrow interests, its narrow geographical interests, will be a lot, a lot greater if, if the US and Europe don't really double down and invest at home and, and in the near abroad. So, Nikki, you you uh, come from the near abroad, and as well as being uh, part of the European Union, um, so you you can look at it from both angles. How important do you think these questions of values and of liberal democracy are to the future of world order? And is it kind of still the the most useful way of looking at the world? Well, they are important, and even if you look at the concert concert of Europe, of course. An important element of that was that all the participants had the same similar, if you want, mental and ideological framework as to how the leadership wished to organize relations. Uh, you know, they are political systems based on uh, you know, imperial dominance and uh, anti-liberal consensus. And that created a degree of ideological solidarity between the great powers of the day at the time, which helped them ride through several rocky phases in, in 19th century European history. And of course, you don't have that ideological glue today between the US and the Europeans and Russia and China and many other countries. But also, in a sense, the way Charles described it uh, is, of course, to me, it sounded much more within the liberal consensus of today. And I almost think that the way you described it, Charlie, you know, a better name for it would be a G5, for example. And I counted, uh, I think, five key uh, permanent members of such a format. You know, they are supposed to meet and discuss about the future, cyber, digital affairs, the environment, 
And that's fine, but the way you described it is much closer to what the G20 or the G8 are supposed to do. It's just that in a kind of different set of, of players. Uh, so, Charlie, why don't we come back to you on the liberal order? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that our positions are not incompatible in the sense that what Niku and, and Leslie have been saying, I don't, I don't disagree with. I'm a big fan of the liberal order. I want to see the liberal democracies get back on their feet. I want to see uh, democratic institutions and market economies snap back. On the other hand, the idea that somehow this order is going to dominate in a geopolitically consequential time frame, I think is is naive, right? If we are lucky enough to see the US and the UK and other countries snap back, great. But, you know, for the foreseeable future, China is going to be a country that is illiberal, that is pushing out. Its GDP will soon surpass that of the United States. It is the major investor in Africa. 70% of Africa's 4G has been built by Huawei. It's showing up in Latin America. So, so the idea is that is that, yeah, let's rebuild that order, but let's not presume that Russia and China and others are going to dock in that order. They're not, at least for now. So what I'm trying to, to do here is say, okay, let's work hard on rebuilding liberal democracy, taming populism, getting our houses in order. But let's also realize that we need to look for new ways of building linkages and working cooperatively across ideological dividing lines. That, to me, along with rebuilding ourselves from the inside out, is the key challenge of our time. Okay, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting discussion. I think that it's uh, refreshing to have these talks about the big picture and, and how world order can be shaped. I get the sense that um, in many parts of the world, people are not necessarily moving in the direction that you're uh, that you're advocating, Charlie. As people talk in more and more ideological terms about about different ways of framing the world, about coalition of democracies, um, summits of democracies in in the U.S., in in China, the whole talk about dual circulation and the the Belt and the Road Initiative has got a very different sort of model to, to to your one and and in europe people are increasingly confused about uh how to think about world order so i think these sorts of discussions are going to be uh raging over the next few years and we'll see how they crystallize but we have one thing left to do in today's podcast which is our bookshelf segment so leslie what's on your bookshelf at the moment well, you know, Mark, I have to say I'm I'm sort of international politics all the way down. If I'm if I'm obvious, um, the stakes are high and the time is short. But I I so I have a you know I have a couple of things right in that domain. One is Adam Gentleson's Kill Switch. I mean, who doesn't want to know about the history of the filibuster? It's a great book, um, and and it's timely. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, or maybe sort of the other end of the spectrum, I, I've got on my list. I haven't opened it up, but Paul Farmer's Mountains Beyond Mountains. Um, I guess a little bit more idealistic, um, humanistic, and uh, inspirational. But it's it's been a point of conversation at the academy. And, um, and and something I'm hoping to open up soon. Um, what's on your bookshelf, Charlie? Well, I'll give a shout out to an essay that I published actually today with Peter Trubowitz in Foreign Affairs 
about how to rebuild the foundations of internationalism in the United States. But since that may make everybody's eyes glaze over, uh, I'll, I'll mention two novels that I've read in the last six months that I thought were really top, top notch. One is a novel called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. She wrote it when she was 23, and it is an amazingly insightful book about humanity. Uh, and the other is a book by Barbara Kingsolver called The Bean Tree, another really powerful book about human nature and friendship. What's on your bookshelf, Nikki? I'm actually reading Robert Cooper's book on the that is called The Ambassadors, and it's a great book. And I just finished the chapter on Talleyrand, so I was quite. We just discussed it on our podcast last week with Robert and Margaret Macmillan and Gideon Rachman. So. So, yes, yeah. it's great, really good that great. Robert did write that book, but it also prepared me today with the latest interpretation of what uh, Talleyrand and the setting up of the Consort of Europe was about. And the other thing is that the last couple of weeks I've been uh, spending a bit of time in fine-tuning a book that I co-edited and we, that will appear in a few months. It's called uh, Russia Rising, Putin's Foreign Policy in the Middle East and North Africa. So I had to go through it several times. Uh, to make sure that all the loose ends have been tied. So um, that's a bit of a self-promotion, but the truth is that that book also took quite a bit of my reading capacity in recent uh, weeks. Great. Well, thank you very much to all of you for a fascinating discussion. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. And even better, heading to whatever platform you've used to download the podcast from and giving us a positive review and a five star rating. But for now, from Charles Kupchin, Leslie Vinja-Murray, Niku Popescu, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Anna Seyschek. Mm-hmm.